One of the strange things about living in the world is that it is only now and then one is quite sure one is going to live forever and ever and ever. One knows it sometimes when one gets up at the tender solemn dawn time and goes out and stands alone and throws one's head far back and looks up and up and watches the pale sky slowly changing and flushing and marvelous unknown things happening until the east almost makes one cry out and one's heart stands still at the strange unchanging majesty of the rising of the sun which has been happening every morning for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. One knows it then for a moment or so. And one knows it sometimes when one stands by oneself in a wood at sunset and the mysterious deep gold stillness slanting through and under the branches seems to be saying slowly again and again something one cannot quite hear, however much one tries. Then sometimes the immense quiet of the dark blue at night, with millions of stars waiting and watching, makes one sure. And sometimes a sound of far-off music makes it true. And sometimes a look in someone's eyes. And it was like that with Colin, when he first saw and heard and felt the springtime inside the four high walls of a hidden garden. That afternoon, the whole world seemed to devote itself to being perfect and radiantly beautiful and kind to one boy. Perhaps out of pure heavenly goodness, the spring came and crowned everything it possibly could into that one place. and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Kit and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of Shunbun, or the Spring Equinox. Spanning from March 20th to April 4th, this season is when we can officially say that spring is well and truly here. The sunlight has returned, and the length of day and night are almost equal in this season. The world is alive with birdsong as the birds build their nests. Overhead, the cherry trees begin to bloom, and the heavens rumble joyfully with spring storms, which provide nourishing water. The season of spring equinox is preceded by the mini-season, Wintering Insects Awake, and is followed by the mini-season, Clear and Bright. As in every season, there's lots to explore in the sky, in the ground, and in our lives as we begin our passage into this special period. As the cherry blossoms begin to unfurl, we are reminded of spring's past, even as we embark into the future. Let's set out. March bustles in on windy feet and sweeps my doorstep and my street. 
She washes and cleans with pounding rains, scrubbing the earth of winter stains. She shakes the grime from carpet green till naught but fresh new blades are seen. Then, house in order, all neat as a pin, she ushers gentle springtime in. Alexis, spring is here, and it is the sun shining on the rain and the rain falling on the sunshine. Indeed. Now is the season full of life and joy. Spring has well and truly sprung, hasn't it? All our waiting and hoping and planning and, what do you know, spring comes again. As Anne of Green Gables said, that is one good thing about this world. There are always sure to be more springs. This time of year, the natural world is getting down to work. Spring thaw has started, flowers are beginning to bloom, and we no longer have to hunt for signs of the season. It's here, albeit still delicate and new. This mini-season celebrates the vernal equinox, which falls on March 20th this year. The equinox marks the astronomical end of winter and the beginning of spring. During the equinoxes, the tilt of the planet remains balanced between the poles. Throughout human history, cultures have celebrated this time of year. We can't help but be joyful. The ancient Iranian New Year's festival of Noruz falls at this time of year, and in Egypt, they welcome Sham el Nasim, a celebration of the start of spring that can be traced as far back as 2700 BC. In China, there are many celebrations at this time, from egg balancing contests to the seasonal tradition of flying kites. Even without a holiday, you can just tell spring is in the air, can't you? It's a celebration as soon as you walk outside. Emily Dickinson wrote that spring light is one that human nature feels. What do you think about that, Kit? Do you feel spring in your bones? Of course, and it gives me a spring in my step. It's not surprising that in Japan, spring is welcomed particularly joyfully, too. The vernal equinox is celebrated as a public holiday in Japan, Shunbun no Hi. This day falls in the middle of the equinoctial week known as Higan. Listeners, you may remember our discussion of Higan from our autumn equinox episode from 2021. As a reminder, Higan refers to the other side in Buddhist tradition, where departed souls go after death. It's believed that at the equinox, we can see the other side more clearly. Spring Higan and Autumn Higan share many of the same traditions as the time to reflect and remember the deceased. During the equinoctial week of Higan, many families visit their ancestors' burial sites to clean gravestones or replant flowers as a way to honor their memory. More than just revisiting these sites, though, Higan is a time to show appreciation for those who have come before. In modern times, the day of the vernal equinox has been called the day to show appreciation for all living things. Remembering our loved ones through these traditions helps us feel connected to our family members, even though they may have passed on. Of course, as with any holiday in Japan, Shunbun no Hi has a special food associated with it, botamochi, or sweet glutinous rice cakes coated with red bean paste. I love red bean paste, so botamochi are an excellent snack for me at any time of year. They're also commonly eaten at the autumnal higan, but in autumn they're called ohagi instead of botamochi. Ohagi and botamochi are the same desserts, 
but in spring they're called botamochi, after the spring flower botan, or peony. In autumn they're called ohagi, after the autumn flower hagi, or bush clover. Listeners, we'll include a link to an easy-to-follow recipe for botamochi on our website, seasonbyseason.org, so please check it out. In the meantime, here are some botamochi haiku from two of our favorite haiku masters. The first is by Yosa Buson, and the second by Kobayashi Isa. From a court lady, I get some botamochi. Spring Equinox. Rice cake with bean paste for the Crossroads Buddha. Spring Breeze. Ah, I like the Kigo or seasonal phrase in that last haiku. Spring Breeze. I think this is a very good Kigo for this season when the harsher gusts of winter give way to the warmer, gentler breath of spring. You bring up something I've been looking forward to talking about, Kit. There are some wonderfully evocative and beautiful springtime kiko. As you can imagine, spring is a time of year often celebrated with poetry. One unique kiko is kazehikaru, which combines two words wind, and the idea of sparkling or shining. This kigo refers to the sparkling sunshine and gentle winds to a bright spring day. I can easily imagine the image of fresh grass glinting in the wind. Here are a few haiku which feature Kaze Hikaru. Sparkling, the blue boat in the shining wind. In the shining wind, white flowers bloom in the handkerchief. Lively talking about local lore and legend. Shining wind. Another great kigo is shungyo, which can be translated as morning light or spring dawn. Seishonogon, the author of The Pillow Book and famous master of Best of Lists, wrote that spring is the best for the morning dawn. There's something gentle yet strong about the spring dawn, isn't there? It may be soft and delicate, but this season knows its own strength. Here are a few haiku. Do I hear the sound of spring dawn rain? Pulled from my dream, the spring dawn. The thrush sings in spring dawn, a star remains. While we're discussing the poetic Kigo of spring, let's take a moment to share a little bit more about haiku as an art form. We've included some haiku in every episode of Season by Season, And for me, the short-form poems communicate so much about seasons and seasonality that they seem inextricably linked. We as humans express our joy of nature through prose, poetry, music, and art, don't we? Though we've never stated it outright, this is something we've tried to explore at the heart of Season by Season. Let's explore haiku a little further 
with our dear friend Hiroaki Sato of Hiro's Corner. Listeners, earlier this month, Kit and I had the opportunity to interview Hiro, and we discussed all manner of things. Let's listen. Hiro, thank you so much for joining us for this interview. We're so grateful for all of your work on Hiro's Corner on Season by Season, and it's been a joy to have you in each episode. So I'm so glad that we get a chance to talk with you in person for our final episode. So to begin, what originally got you interested in studying haiku? In Japan, most of the time, most of the time, uh, we learn about haiku and, uh, in, in primary school. But in my case, I, I didn't study in a proper sense until I went to the Doshia University in 1960s. But at the time, uh, English major, major being the, you have to study American and, and the British uh, English literature, poetry. So you learn, and then you begin to wonder how come, how, how a haiku, something like as short as that can make, make it as a poem. So I decided to, uh, you know, reading up on it. And then it's very difficult to find out how, even though you are supposed to be immersed in it all your life um, until then, you know, haiku is uh, such an easy thing, even though it's not really that easy, actually, <laughs> to, if you compose one. So like uh, the one I cited, the famous three English poet, uh, poetry poems, like the first one is uh, Shelley's Ode to the West Wind, O Wild West Wind, Thou Breath of Autumn's Being. And the next one is uh, Keats' Ode to a Grecian Urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness. And the third one I thought of uh, is a Shakespeare sonnet number 33. Full many a glorious morning have I seen. I used to memorize most of these. The first one can be easily put into 575. The second one, Thou Still Unravished Bride of Quietness. And the third one, the Shakespeare sonnet. So that, you know, you can change, change them in any way you want. Five seven very easy. Which means that uh, these uh, all wild west wind and so on, there is just the beginning of a long uh, Shelley and Keats. They are long poems, and only one line can be translated into a haiku line, like these uh, Shelley and uh, Keats and Shakespeare of uh, opening line, so to speak. What are some of the requirements of haiku? Hoku, the requirement is uh, 
uh, it has to describe what you see right in front of you. Today is March, so you can talk about summer. So today we can talk about uh, maybe you have seen cherry blossoms no, it's, already. No, it's still too cold for that. I'd say um, light snow is falling outside. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe plums. Maybe, maybe plums, or yeah. we're dreaming of cherry blossoms in the snow. <laughs> yeah, so there's two basic uh, rules. You have to refer to the particular season in which you are writing these things. And then, of course, the other is a, a 575. Hiro, would you say that modern haiku have left behind kigo? Are they just considered antiquated? What do you think? Most, 99% of the people who write haiku stick to the basic rules, 575, and the inclusion of a kigo, you know, seasonal word. And uh, only a few people, only 1%, 2%, I never counted them because there are so many uh, haiku writers in Japan. At one time, uh, one estimate those 10 million people write haiku. Haiku is so easy. Well, the, the, then you ask, why do they stick to such rules? Uh, one rule is that, uh, I think the basic rule is that in the case of Haiku, if you leave the form of 575, they, they call it teike, a set form, teike, then you stop writing haiku. It's no longer haiku. So your question, in a way, is the opposite. Hmm. Mm. Hiro, can you share with us how kiko, or seasonal words, developed? One way to describe why is it something like Kigo Caesar was started uh, or took roots long time ago in Japan. The reason is that the Japanese culture uh, emanated from Kyoto. Kyoto was a court, uh, court meeting, imperial house. That's where everything started. That was the center of culture in Japan until the whole thing moved to Tokyo in the 19th century. And so if the court people decide, oh, these are this and that and so on, then uh, they admired what emanated from Kyoto. So they followed it, even though in, say that they are Akita or Iwate, they, they follow, ah, I see that cherry blossoms belong spring, even though they're, they're, they may be about a month late than Kyoto. And then, of course, initially, these are seasonal phrases. There are only a few of them initially. Only about seven to 800 words are usually used. Hiro, what are you up to these days? Can you share with our listeners what you're working on? Well, at the moment, because now, now that I have uh, three books with a publisher, one is a co collection of uh, uh, news, newspaper columns and essays and stuff, and the Stone Bridge will publish it. And then 
two are with uh, new directions. Uh, one is uh, a friend of mine, Ishii Tatsuhiko, who is a great scholar, even though he doesn't teach anything. Uh, he reads everything all over the world. And the other one is a different uh, poet, Yomota Inuhiko. The one I actually trying to finish is a samurai book. I'm uh, such a coward. So you, you wonder why, why I write about hike, uh, samurai. Samurai is, uh, of course, murders and so on and so forth. In your book, 100 Frogs, you write at great length about Basho's frog haiku, the ancient pond frog jumps in, waters sound. Why do you think this haiku became so popular and recognizable? I suppose I, it's easy to understand, don't you think? The old pond, a frog jumps in the sound. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's haiku. For someone just beginning to read haiku or just becoming interested in haiku, are there any particularly approachable haiku authors that you might recommend? Yeah, of course, Issa would be fine, you know, because it's Issa wrote so many. Uh, he scribbled everywhere, and then he also, one thing, what the diary Issa left was actually rose, the kind of uh, diary we think of as a diary. You know, you think of something and write down something, and then end the passage you describe, end with a haiku. So it's easy to understand. My favorite, like uh, Issa, uh, you, you saw it, the world of dew is, yes, a world of dew. And even so, now Donald King translated slightly differently. The world of dew is, he doesn't say yes. The world of dew a world, is a, a world of dew, and yet, and yet, or something like that. He follows again 575 in three lines. If you ever see my uh, book with a Burton Watson uh, from the country of eight islands, I translate diary preceding this one, which describes uh, his, his uh, daughter uh, dies uh, before chicken pox, uh, before she turns uh, two years old. In this case, it's very easy to understand. I'm quite sure it is to you too. The world of uh, dew is of course a uh, metaphor for life. Hiro, to talk about the three lines of haiku, the five, seven, five, and three lines, that's something you don't tend to adhere to in your own translations. Can you talk a little bit about why not? Well, the simple reason is that, of course, uh, most Japanese haiku writers uh, write haiku in one line. Now, this doesn't mean they mean a haiku consists of three sections most of the time. So if you ask them to write shikishi, you know, the decorated paper, they 
break them up in many ways. Most standard is pro probably three lines, but they, they spread them out. But that's for aesthetic purposes. If you write it in uh, one line, oh, it's somewhat odd. So they, they break them up. But other than that, uh, unless you ask the magazine or printer to print them in a different way, they always automatically print them in one line. On the other hand, I do not think uh, I do not think that uh, English or French or Swedish German uh, people think that haiku consists of three lines. I don't think they are wrong. Uh, I do not think they are wrong. They're, they're, they they do whatever they like. Uh, like this is one one of the poets I like. Or Mabson Southard. Uh, th this this person insisted on three lines, five seven five. So, would you read it? Across the lake, through upcurls of morning mist, the cry of a loon. This comes from deep shade and flickering light. Selected haiku of Omabson Southerd. That that one I like. I translate, translated that into Japanese too, but I, the five seven five usually says too much for five seven five. So I translated the Mizumi no Asagi Mauya Abino Koe Mizumi no. Asagiri Mauya Abi no Koe. Now, if you translate it that way, I, you miss certain things said in the original. Across a still lake, a quiet lake, that quiet still part is uh, missing in my translation, Mizumi no. So I say across the lake or simply uh, in the lake in my translation, if you retranslate it back into English, then the, the beautiful image of uh, through up curls of morning mist, the up curl is missing. I say dances, so morning mist dances. Then the last one is okay, uh, cry of a loon. In Japan, loon, L-O-N is called Abi. So Abi no Koe, five voice. So two elements are missing. One is a still, and the other is up curls. Up curls is if you translate it really, then it's too long. And then uh, my favorite is uh, the if you uh, look for any kind of high anthology, you always come, to, come into Ko uh, van den Hoover. Ko is, of course, Cornelius. Ko van den Hoover was the president of Hike Society, but that's not important. He, he was just before me, 1978. But uh, he wrote this 
many years ago, the, the one I like a great deal, and it uh, originally itself is written in one line. A stick goes over the fall at sunset. A stick goes over the falls at sunset. And he, he made his own grave, um, probably made of marble uh, in Maine. And he said uh, he engraved this haiku uh, on his grave. It, it's a pretty one. A, a stick goes over the holes at sunset. And he still lives to this day. Yeah, yeah he, he's uh, not far away on Long Island. Hiro, I've so enjoyed getting to talk with you today. Thank you for talking with us. Listeners, we've been speaking with Hiroaki Sato, author and translator. His recent works include On Haiku and 100 Frogs. You can visit our website to learn more. Thank you, Hiro, for that illuminating interview. Listeners, if you'd like to support Hiro and read his books, we highly recommend On Haiku or 100 Frogs. And thank you for sharing Hiro's Corner with us throughout the seasons. I've learned so much. To return to the discussion of the spring equinox, there are a few more Kiko that I think are truly emblematic of the season. There's a certain type of peacefulness you get at this time of year, which the Japanese call nodoka, or spring peace. I think we can imagine that sunny, contented feeling. Here are two haiku by Isa. Spring peace. After rain, a gang war, garden sparrows. Spring peace, a mountain monk peeks through the hedge. Before we start relaxing too much amid the dawns, pleasant days, and shining breezes, we can't forget that spring is also a time of storms. Ah, uh, yes. Spring weather is certainly a topic we could talk about for an entire episode and not run out of things to say. We talked about weather quite a bit in our last episode, Snow Becomes Rain, but even more in this season, I'm reminded of a quote by author Henry Van Dyke. The first day of spring is one thing, and the first spring day is another. The difference between them is sometimes as great as a month. Henry may have something there. The weather certainly has other things in mind during spring. It may be, dare I say, ferocious. Here's a fascinating and very specific Kigo of Japan, Ryuten ni Noboru, which translates as riding the dragon. This refers to harsh rain during the spring equinox, the time of year when mythological dragons of Chinese legend were said to have climbed to heaven. This kigo refers to yinglong, rain-making dragons of Chinese mythology. Rain dragons were mighty creatures who often aided men. Besides controlling rain and drought, 
The Yingwang dragons used their tails to draw lines in the earth and create rivers and waterways. Lui An, a Han dynasty prince, had this to say about water. There is nothing in the world so weak as water, yet its experience is such that it has no bounds, its depth such that it cannot be fathomed. In length it is without limit, in distance it has no shores. In its flows and ebbs, its increase and decrease, it is measureless. When it rises to heaven, it produces rain and dew. When it falls upon the earth, it gives richness and moisture. There is no creature in the world to whom it does not impart life, and nothing that it does not bring to completion. Here is a lyric poem by Susha, sung to the water dragon's chant about the harm such water can bring. I do not grieve that the willow catkins have flown away, but that in the western garden the fallen red cannot be gathered. When dawn comes and the rain is over, where are the traces they have left? A pond full of brock duckweeds, of all the colors of springtime, two-thirds have gone with the fust and one-third with the flowing water. When you look closely, these are not willow catkins, but drop after drop, parted lover's tears. Ah, I think we all know this feeling of spring glory cut short by an ill-timed storm. Well, if you happen to have this experience, especially during the days near the spring equinox, I suppose you could always blame it on the water dragon. This last poem we shared featured imagery of willow catkins, a kigo we explored on our Wintering Insects Awake episode in 2021. And just like this poem implies, one way or another, catkin season is no more. Now the willows are beginning to put forth soft green leaf buds. The ancient Chinese credited the willow with the ability to ward off demons, prevent blindness, and purify. That makes sense, as aspirin is derived from the willow. In fact, willow bark has been used as a traditional medicine for more than 3,500 years, not only by the Chinese, but also the ancient Sumerians and Egyptians. The analgesic agent within willow bark is salicin, which would later form the basis of modern aspirin. In Japanese art, willows are often paired with water, heron, and, another one of our kigo we'll talk about later, swallows. Willow trees are often associated with ghosts in Japan, too. Ghosts are said to appear in willow groves. Alexis, do you remember the festival of Qingming? We talked about it in our first episode of Season by Season back in April 2020. It falls at the beginning of the next mini-season, clear and bright. But related to willows, in China, some carry willow branches with them on the day of their tomb sweeping as a part of the Qingming festival. Willow branches are also put up on gates and front doors to help ward off evil spirits during this day. Willow's flexible nature extends to divine beings as well. The Buddhist Bodhisattva of Compassion, Guan Yin, is often depicted seated on a rock with a willow branch and a vase of water at her side, with which she uses to expel demons. Here's Andrew Wang's translation of early Tang poet Hei Zhizhong. Up to your crown, O oh willow, dressed in the green of jades. 
Myriads of twigs so verdant droop like your silken braids. Who knows who the tailor is who's cut your leaves so fine? It's the vernal winds past February, sharp as the scissors' blades. You mentioned that willows are commonly paired with swallows in Japanese art. This is a very common motif in Chinese art as well. The graceful swallow paired with the delicate willow suggest beauty, elegance, and a feeling of tranquility. Both the willow and the swallow are understood to be emblems of springtime. In fact, in the Chinese almanac upon which the Japanese almanac we follow here on Season by Season is based, one of the pentads that make up the spring equinox season is called the Swallows Arrive. The swallows would be making their northward migration around the time of the spring equinox. Speaking of swallows, and willows, the swallows' migration is whimsically imagined in Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows. Let's listen to a description of migration from the swallows' perspective from this charming book. No, you, you don't understand, naturally, said the second swallow. First, we feel it stirring within us, a sweet unrest. Then back come the recollections one by one like homing pigeons. They flutter through our dreams at night. They fly with us in our wheelings and circlings by day. We hunger to inquire of each other, to compare notes and assure ourselves that it was all really true as one by one the scents and sounds and names of long-forgotten places come gradually back and beckon to us. I tried stopping on one year, said the third swallow. I had grown so fond of the place that when the time came I hung back and let the others go on without me. For a few weeks it was all well enough, but afterwards, oh, the weary length of the nights, the shivering, sunless days, the air so clammy and chill, and not an insect in an acre of it. No, it was no good. My courage broke down, and one cold, stormy night I took wing, flying well inland on account of the strong easterly gales. It was snowing hard as I beat through the passes of the great mountains, and I had a stiff fight to win through. But never shall I forget the blissful feeling of the hot sun again on my back as I sped down to the lakes that lay so blue and placid below me, and the taste of my first fat insect. To say a little more about the swallow, they can be a beautiful sight in spring, and highly recognizable for their pointed, angled wings and forked tails. In both China and Japan, to see two flying swallows together is considered an omen of good luck in marriage. In Japanese, swallow is tsubame. Tsubame is considered a spring kigo. There is another bird, frequently in competition with the swallow, that I personally would consider a spring kigo, suzume, or sparrow. Listeners, you may remember in our Cold Dew episode, we discussed the unusual seasonal phrase, sparrows turn into clams. 
This referred to the seasonal observation of sparrows disappearing as the weather turned colder. Now that the weather is becoming warm again, perhaps they have shaken off their clam forms and returned to the skies? Perhaps. However, Kit, you may be interested to learn that Suzume is actually not considered to be specific to any one season, and many saijiki, or lists of seasonal topics, do not mention them in spring or otherwise. Suzume no koi, or voice of sparrows, however, is solidly considered a springtime kigo. Interesting. So the sparrow isn't considered seasonal, but the song of the sparrow is. At least, that's what Japanese haiku writers seem to have decided. For myself, in this season I can confirm that I awake to their chirps. Our old companion Henry David Thoreau, on the other hand, seemed to consider sparrows a sure sign of spring, as he exuberantly wrote, The first sparrow of spring, the year beginning with younger hope than ever, the faint silvery warblings heard over the partially bare and moist fields from the bluebird, the song sparrow, and the red wing, as if the last flakes of winter tinkled as they fell. Swallows, sparrows, and perhaps particularly the songs they all sing, all seem like good springtime kigo. Birdsong reminds me of another quote from our oft-quoted favorite, The Secret Garden, as Dickens says to Mary, Just listen to them birds. The world's full of them, all whistling and pipping, he said. Look at them all darting about and harking to them calling to each other. Come springtime, seems like if all the world's calling. The leaves is uncurling so you can see them. And my word, the nice smells there is about. Birdsong is a beautiful Kiko, and the subject of one of my favorite haiku by Isa. The bird singing in this haiku is the mountain cuckoo, which admittedly is considered more of a summer bird. But after all, this may be my last chance to share this haiku with you dear listeners, so why not? Here it is. Like warbling pure haiku, mountain cuckoo. Interesting. And what is it about this haiku in particular that you feel drawn to, Kit? To me, Issa seems to be saying that birdsong itself is haiku. I think there's really something to that. Issa doesn't want his poetry to be too esoteric or studied too heavily. Rather, it is something that happens in the moment, an expression of pure life being lived that can wash over us as simply as we listen to birds singing in the trees. Listening to the songs the bird sings, living in the moment, perhaps during spring with the sun shining down on us, we are most ready to appreciate these small blessings that nature gives us. When April scatters, charms a primrose gold, among the copper leaves and thickets old, and singing skylarks from the meadows rise to twinkle like black stars in sunny skies. When I can hear the small woodpecker ring, time on a tree for all the birds that sing, and hear the pleasant cuckoo loud and long, the simple bird that thinks two notes a song.
one last interesting kigo incorporating sparrows before we take off is suzume gakure, which means enough to hide a sparrow. This refers to when plants are just beginning to grow and have just enough greenery on them to, well, hide a sparrow. Aw, what a cute kigo! Thinking of plants just beginning to sprout up, I'm reminded of our interview last year with Winifred Bird, author of Eating Wild Japan. We spoke with her in our April-May Grain Rain episode. Our conversation about sansai, wild mountain vegetables and foraging, really stayed with me. I think about that verdure in spring. I'm glad to hear it stayed with you, Kit. As you know, foraging is one of my hobbies, and it is a good season for it. But were you ever able to try it for yourself? I confess I'm still a bit nervous about trying it on my own. Maybe I need a foraging buddy to go with me to show me the ropes. But I did try some of the recipes she recommended to us. Do you remember her telling us about tsukushi or field horsetail? Yes, I do. As Winifred told us, field horsetail grows throughout Japan, as well as across much of the northern hemisphere, including nearly every U.S. state, making tsukushi a good sansai to experiment with, even if you don't live in Japan. Try it sautéed, blanched, or simmered with seasonings, and then fold it into freshly cooked rice. Listeners, more information on how to prepare tsukushi can be found in Eating Wild Japan. So, how did you enjoy tsukushi, Kit? Well, they're fine. I'll be interested in trying them in different ways now that they're back in season. Something we didn't discuss back then was what a nostalgic plant tsukushi are for many living in Japan. Children are often taught to forage for tsukushi as part of their outdoor education, and sometimes search the ground for those thin brown stalks as an activity on the Shunbun public holiday. Tsukushi are regarded with fondness as a highly anticipated herald of spring. Ah, uh, how nice. After the tsukushi have emerged, another unusual kiko that comes to mind is yayu, which means playing in the fields at springtime. I have happy memories playing outdoors in what I thought were meadows near a creek by my house, which, as Kenneth Graham of The Wind in the Willows aptly wrote, the rich meadow grass seemed that morning of a freshness and greenness unsurpassable. Do you remember that creek, Kit? Yes, I do. I remember it had this almost magical quality to it, since we would go out there together on our own, unsupervised, which felt special to me. Listeners, I was very sheltered. It felt like a place where we could do whatever we wanted, which I seem to remember sometimes just meant collecting leaves and interesting stones. I think my memories of the creek during spring are strongest, when the banks would be full of soft, vibrant grass and the occasional speckle of orange California poppies. The way the sun shone through that green, it was as though the ground glowed. And it certainly can't be meadows without wildflowers, can it, Kit? One flower both you and I grew up with in Northern California was wild mustard. Uh, yes, springtime brings wild mustard blooms, and sometimes it seems the entire landscape is covered in their gentle yellow. It's hard to get away from all that mustard. I've heard that some Napa Valley wine growers plow it into the ground in March for soil conditioning purposes. Helen Hunt Jackson wrote this about the California mustard in 1884. The plant is a tyrant and a nuisance, the terror of the farmer. 
It takes riotous possession of a whole field in a season. Once in, never out. For one plant this year, a million the next. But it is impossible to wish the land were freed of it. Its gold is as distinct a value to the eye as the gold nugget is in the pocket. I imagine mustard must be a bit of a garden thug, but it's so beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful, and California mustard has an interesting origin story to boot. The mustard plant actually isn't native, but was brought over from Eurasia by immigrants. According to legend, early Franciscan padres scattered mustard seeds along El Camino Real, a road in California that linked the missions together by making a golden trail of flowers that would guide weary travelers to shelter. I like that image. For that matter, maybe this is a plant I can forage on my own after all. Listeners, we'll post a wild mustard resource on our website that includes recipes if you're interested in foraging for some yourself. Similarly in Japan, at this time of year are the rape blossoms, known as nanohana in Japanese. They are also a member of the cabbage mustard family, just like our California blossoms, and their early leafy growth has been enjoyed as a spring delicacy for centuries. Their seeds are used to make canola oil, and so they are sometimes referred to as canola flowers. The canola flowers. And the tide goes back. The small stream. The impact of canola flowers everywhere obscures the rivers of Yodo and Katsura. This mention of the Yodo River, which becomes known as the Uji River in Kyoto, as well as the Nanohana, reminds me of the tea master Sen no Rikyu. Sen no Rikyu loved this flower so much that he prepared a flower arrangement using its blooms before committing ritual suicide under the order of Toyotomo Hideyoshi. As Liza Dalby notes in her work, East Wind Melts the Ice, Sen no Rikyu had arrangements of them in the seasonal alcove where showy, fragrant, or edible blossoms were technically not allowed. In the culture of tea ceremony, decorating with these flowers or serving confections in its motif are not allowed until March 28th, the anniversary of Sanno Rikyu's death. Bitter green, sweet gold, with this sip I remember. Riverside flowers. This tidy tea room, brightened by these golden buds the warm light of spring. Ah, spring meadow flowers are a joy. And speaking of joy, this poem by Annette Wynne, which extols the wonder of a wildflower, made me smile and give a little laugh the first time I read it. It's better to be a buttercup out in the grass where a hundred children pass and at evening drink the dew than be you. Poor little rich flower, shut up in a lady's bower. Does the lady look your way any day? Ever stoop to you and bless? Give your head a soft caress? You are such a tiny part of all her things. Her heart, a crowded palace is, but oh, to know the bliss of being meadow glad, 
like this. You should be out in the grass where the happy children pass. We would like to welcome you to our sunshine, rain, and dew flower in a lady's bower. While many plants are already growing out in the fields, and some, like the nanohana, may even be blooming, for a lot of us gardeners, March is a busy time of seed sorting, gathering, and sowing. You've got to get the seeds into the ground, watered and fed with sunlight, so they can begin their journey. Here's a fun little poem about seed sowing and growing. As a quiet little seedling lay within its darksome bed, to itself it fell a-talking, and this is what it said. I am not so very robust, but I'll do the best I can. And the seedling from that moment its work of life began. So it pushed a little leaflet up into the light of day to examine the surroundings and show the rest the way. The leaflet liked the prospect, so it called its brother Stem. Then two other leaflets heard it and quickly followed them. To be sure, the haste and hurry made the seedling sweat and pant. But almost before it knew it, it found itself a plant. The sunshine poured upon it, and the clouds they gave a shower. And the little plant kept growing till it found itself a flower. Little folks, be like the seedling. Always do the best you can. Every child must share life's labor just as well as every man. And the sun and showers will help you through the lonesome struggling hours till you raise to light and beauty virtues fair unfading flowers this year i'm trying to grow everything in the community garden i'm a part of from seed so i hope my little seeds do just as well as those described in this poem Here's another poem by Robert Frost about seeds, which I know you'll enjoy, Alexis, and which I hope will inspire our listeners to be joyfully distracted by and fascinated with nature. You come to fetch me from my work tonight when supper's on the table, and we'll see if I can leave off burying the white soft petals fallen from the apple tree. Soft petals, yes, but not so barren quite, mingled with these, smooth bean and wrinkled pea, and go along with you, ere you lose sight of what you came for and become like me, slave to a springtime passion for the earth. How love burns through the putting in the seed, on through the watching for that early birth when... Just as the soil tarnishes with weed, the sturdy seedling with arched body comes shouldering its way and shedding the earth crumbs. In our very first episode, Clear and Bright, we discussed cherry blossoms and cherry blossom viewing parties, or hanami. You know, 
re-listening to that episode recently, I was surprised to hear how restrained we were in our discussion of cherry blossoms. It's such a rich topic that we could have discussed it for much longer. Do you remember, Alexis? Of course. I think we were, shall we say, uh, a little shy in that first episode. <laughs> Clear and bright is the season that follows our current mini-season of the spring equinox, and as the season has come around again and the cherry blossom trees have begun blooming, I want to return again to the lush topic of cherry blossoms, or sakura. I remember one thing we discussed is the similarity of blooming trees around this time of year. You've finally learned how to identify cherry blossoms by sight, haven't you, Kit? Yes, I have. In my defense, they do bloom around the same time as many other flowering trees. But cherry blossoms are fairly distinct in the shape of their petals. Cherry blossoms have a natural cleft at their tip, making them easily identifiable. Plum blossoms, on the other hand, are more rounded, and peach blossoms have teardrop-shaped petals. Ah, you've learned a lot, I see. And I'll add that the color of the petals is another way to tell. That's true, with some caveats. There are over 600 cultivars of cherry blossom trees in Japan alone, and some of them have darker petals than others. But generally speaking, cherry blossoms are a soft, light pink, and may have some white in their blossoms too. Plum blossoms tend to be darker in shade and can even be purple or magenta. It's a beautiful season for all kinds of blossoming trees, something that was noted in a letter from Emily Dickinson to her brother Austin from 1854. Today is very beautiful. Just as bright, just as blue, just as green, and as white, and as crimson as the cherry trees full in bloom, and the half-opening peach blossoms, and the grass just waving, and sky, and hill, and cloud can make it if they try. How I wish you were here. You thought last Saturday beautiful, yet to this golden day, "'Twas but one single gem to a whole handful of jewels." Sakura are so beloved in Japan that they may be considered to be the country's unofficial national flower. To an extent, they are inescapable in springtime. Every year, the Japanese Meteorological Agency tracks the Cherry Blossom Front and reports on the ideal time for blossom viewing to help the public know when to plan their hanami, or blossom viewing parties. The warm front that brings with it the blooms of the cherry blossoms begins as early as January in Okinawa and typically reaches Kyoto around now, at the spring equinox. Even if one somehow misses a trip to the park during cherry blossom season, there are so many seasonal snacks and foods with cherry blossom flavors or packaging that are released in spring, it's impossible to escape the pink. Listeners, we'll have some recipes featuring cherry blossoms on our website, if you're intrigued by this floral flavor. I would compare the excitement for cherry blossom season to the fevered pitch of the Christmas season here in the States. Everywhere there are cherry blossom decorations. Even beer cans are released with cherry blossom colors on their packaging to fully immerse oneself in the spirit of the season. Alexis, do you have any special cherry blossom viewing memories? Well, 
the cherry blossom latte from Starbucks is not to be missed. Also, not cherry blossom viewing per se, but I remember on one trip to Matsue in Shimane Prefecture, on one of the country roads I drove down, it had a large cherry tree in the middle of an open field in full pink blooming glory. The day was warm, and the sky was that kind of hazy yellow you get in spring. As I drove by, I saw that in the boughs of the trees there were lanterns hanging. I was so inspired by the scene, even though it was just a glimpse out of the car window, that I made a piece of artwork inspired by it. How about you, Kit? I've been lucky enough to be in Japan for a few sakura seasons now, but somehow I always found myself working at the height of the season. My last year in Japan, I was so determined to celebrate a proper hanami, but when I finally got a free day, the forecast was that the blossoms would be just past their peak. So instead of waiting, I went after work one evening to a local shrine. It was after dark, but the cherry blossoms were all illuminated with lights from underneath. Even as late as it was in the evening, there were still lots of people celebrating on picnic blankets beneath the trees, and food vendors were stationed all around the shrine. It was a lively, wonderful feeling, and I'm really happy I got to go. I'll post some pictures of that time to our website if you'd like to check them out. Aw, that's great, Kit. You got to see Yozakura, the nighttime cherry blossom viewing. Come to think of it, my cherry tree that I saw must have been part of Yozakura, too. I must say that cherry blossoms illuminated do have an almost dreamlike quality to them. Don't you agree? Yes, definitely. They're beautiful during the day, that goes without saying, but at night, one really feels the beauty of spring and how precious the warmth of the evening is after winter. And there is such a beautiful light in the spring twilight. A lovely spring night suddenly vanished while we viewed cherry blossoms. We also discussed in our Wintering Insects Awake episode of last year the many schools and public buildings in Japan have cherry blossom trees outside of them. As the fiscal year and school year in Japan begin on April 1st, the first day of work or school tends to coincide with seeing cherry blossom trees in beautiful bloom, something which helps to cement a nostalgic feeling for many. Do you think that nostalgic feeling is perhaps at the root of the popularity of cherry blossoms in Japan? Hmm, that may be part of it, but the full answer is a little bit more complicated than just that. I know we've discussed briefly the concept of mono no aware, or the transience of things. There's beauty in cherry blossoms, yes, but they are with us for such a brief moment. This brings with them an awareness of the impermanence of our own lives, and indeed, the impermanence of everything. This is the basis for this poem by the monk Saigyo. Gazing at them, immersed, I become so intimate with the blossoms, and with the falling away and separation comes sorrow. There is a poignancy to this feeling, I think, that is at the heart of many beautiful things in nature. Here on Season by Season, in our discussion of the moon in autumn, or the falling leaves, or, say, the flavor of an apricot. 
we acknowledge that there is a time when these things are most appreciated, in its own season. The sadness of the fleeting nature of beauty deepens our appreciation for it. Yet at the same time, we cherish the comfort we feel in knowing that the season will return again. Are we to look at cherry blossoms only in full bloom, the moon only when it is cloudless? To long for the moon while looking on the rain, to lower the blinds and be unaware of the passing of spring, these are even more deeply moving. Branches about to blossom or gardens strewn with faded flowers are worthier of our admiration. And yet, the real feeling of Monono Oware is that, even if one never sees the same cherry blossoms again, they are no less beautiful. As much as we want to keep the things we enjoy close to us, the true nature of life is that many moments of joy will only be brief, and change is constant. That evening you spent at the shrine under the cherry blossoms is one you may never have again, Kit. But though it may be over, and though that may make us feel sad, it is no less meaningful for having ended. I get the feeling we may no longer be talking about just cherry blossoms anymore, Alexis. You may be right, Kit. Let's share another cherry blossom poem, this one translated by our own dear Hiroaki Sato from a 9th century poem by Ariwara no Narihira. If there were no such thing as cherry blossoms in this world, in springtime, how untroubled our hearts would be. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us through the months and years on this seasonal journey. We hope that together we have found joy, comfort, excitement, expectation, learning, perspective, laughter, all manner of things from our seasonal nature-filled wanderings. Let us end with one final poem and set out once again. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough and stands about the woodland ride wearing white for Easter tide. Now of my threescore years and ten, twenty will not come again, and take from seventy springs a score. It only leaves me fifty more. And since to look at things in bloom, Fifty springs are little room. About the woodlands I will go to see the cherry hung with snow. Listeners, thank you for joining us in the season of the Spring Equinox. 
In this season, we celebrate that we have come full circle once again, and we are in the season of new, beautiful beginnings. As you may remember, the mini-season that follows spring equinox, according to the Japanese calendar, is the season clear and bright. We will include a link to our archival 2020 episode for you to enjoy in the next season ahead. Now, listeners, please be kind. This was our first episode we ever created. Some of the kiko, or seasonal words we discussed in the season of the spring equinox are tsukushi, or field horsetail, foraging, spring dawn, nanohana, California mustard, spring meadows, shining wind, spring peace, spring storms, ryuten ninoboru, ride the dragon, swallows, sparrows, and birdsong, vernal equinox day in Japan, botomochi, seed sowing, wildflowers, playing in fields, willows, and cherry blossoms. Listeners, what are some seasonal words you associate with this hopeful season? As always, you can email your Kigo to seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com or feel free to share them to our Facebook page. And don't forget, there's lots of extra seasonality at our website, seasonbyseason.org, including recipes, visual examples of Kigo, and of course, our specially curated music playlist full of songs that should last you all season long. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by Francis Hodgson Burnett, Susan Reiner, Yosa Buson, Kobayashi Isa, Junko Tamaki, Sachiko Hagia, Atsuko Oyanagi, Kazuhiko Endo, Kazuo Hosoka, Akio Nagata, Sushia, Heiji Zhang, Kenneth Graham, Henry David Thoreau, William Henry Davies, Kawahigashi Hekikoto, Gonsui, Alexis, Kit, Annette Wynn, Lawrence Dunba, Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson, Matsuo Basho, Saigyo, Yoshida Kenko, Ariwara no Narihira, and A.E. Hausman. The poems featured on this podcast are in the public domain or with permission from their creators. We would also like to thank our poetry readers for this episode. Mara Rosencrantz, Corey Kohler, Ian Whitaker, Zachary Piper, Catherine Piper, Stuart Diamond, Gail Wine, Ed Von Atterkas, Cyrus Lanthier, Bernabe Ted Costales, Dan Collier, Jason Berner, Alan Coyne, Carl Smith, Bedalia Albanese, and Nikki Gempf. We would also like to extend an extra special thanks to Hiroaki Sato. Thank you for the great interview, Hiro, and all your contribution to Hiro's Corner over the years. This is the place in the episode where we often like to include a quote from Henry David Thoreau, but for this episode, we thought we might give Thoreau a rest, and instead share one more from The Wind in the Willows, which seems appropriate for this season of setting out and returning home once again. Take the adventure, heed the call, now ere the irrevocable moment passes. Tis but a banging of the door behind you, a blithesome step forward, and you are out of the old life and into the new. Then, some day, some day long hence, jog home here if you will, when the cup has been drained and the play has been played, and sit down by your quiet river with a store of goodly memories for company. Thank you for joining us for our journey through the 24 mini-seasons of the Japanese calendar. May you look forward and find joy and hope in every season.
See you in another season.